Hello, dear listener. This is The Optimist in Revolt. Good morning, Thursday morning. Uh, I'm not sure actually when you're listening to this, but I'm recording it on Thursday morning, so good morning. Um, if you've been listening to this podcast for any amount of time, I guess the three episodes that exist, first of all, thank you. But uh, second of all, you know, uh, if you've used your powers of deduction, that I ask the same seven questions to each guest that I have on the show. Uh, it was pointed out to me recently that if you are listening, that you might be interested in the way that I will answer these questions. So, I'm flying solo this week, um, and I'm going to answer the seven questions um, as far as I am concerned. You know, some of them are personal, some of them are more like uh, objective views about the world sorts of questions. Um, So I'm going to just get into them uh, so that maybe you know going forward where I'm coming from, or maybe you're just interested in listening to me ramble about, as we say, uh, very serious matters and hot dogs. So um, the first thing I want to talk about is the person who, is, who I don't know who has had the biggest spiritual impact on my life. Uh, and that would be R.C. Sproul, um, which is weird because he died three years ago, and I kind of discovered him about two years ago. Um, and just the thing about R.C. Sproul is that he says really smart things, um, in a very approachable way. He's got that kind of um, Pennsylvania accent, slightly, uh, and he's just kind of a very solid preacher and a theologian. And listening to him, it's kind of just, it's under, he makes, he basically makes things so that a dummy like me can understand them. Not only that, but you know that even if you're critical of R.C. Sproul, that his answers are all coming from the Bible, uh, which, you know, you can say is his interpretation of the Bible, and that's a fair criticism, of course, but uh, at least you know that his intention is to always find the biblical answer to something. Um, I think he's very theologically sound. Um, and the other thing that I really enjoy about R.C. is that he kind of has an answer for everything. If you go on his website, uh, on the Ligonier website, the foundation he started, the ministry he started, um, there's an answer for everything on there. You know, you get into the you're reading the Bible. You have a tricky passage. Um, I'm not sure exactly what what that means. You can go on on the uh, I guess it's Ligonier on the Ligonier uh, website, and there's an answer for everything. Now, I'm not saying I take that as gospel. I'm uh, simply saying that they have an answer. And so sometimes I go on there. I'm like, ah, that doesn't really seem quite right. It seems like we may be trying to shoehorn uh, some preconceptions into this idea. But at least you have a starting point or you know what a, a good argument is, even if it's not the objectively good argument. And so R.C. has been, uh, he's probably the theologian whose books I've read the most of. Uh, and yeah, so, and you know, you can just, there's something about him that's also very strangely soothing to listen to. Um, I listened to uh, his podcast, Renewing Your Mind, which is just old lectures from his theological classes and church classes and stuff. So um, R.C. Sproul has been a huge impact on on me, uh, on my 
spiritual development, uh, starting to take my faith seriously. He was a huge resource for me. Um, and I'm sad that he died, but he's with the Lord. So I guess he's not necessarily sad that he died. Um, the next question I would typically ask is what is the best song? And this is a song that, this is a question that has an objective answer, which is to say amazing grace. Amazing grace is the best song that has ever been written by a human. Um, first off for the music theory nerds among us, uh, it uses only the pentatonic scale in the melody, which is the best scale that there is. You can use it over anything, and it can sound like anything you want it to sound like. It's very malleable. Um, but anyway, beyond the melodic beauty of Amazing Grace, just lyrically, um, you know, there are a few songs that I think make just about everybody uh, well up uh, as Amazing Grace. It's just, you know, it's one of those songs that just kind of hits you. And I think that there's a reason that it has so much crossover into uh, the appeal, not just in the Christian community, but everyone loves that song. Atheists love that song. Um, it's just the most beautiful song I think that's ever been written by a human, uh, lyrically, melodically. I like the chords. It's pretty simple. And there's a lot you can do with it too. Um, without having to be super showy, there are some different inflections and runs and things you can do that aren't crazy, uh, and super showy, but are nice, uh, to listen to. Um, so typically now I would ask uh, about the coming to Christ story. How did you come to Christ? And I always put the caveat, well, through the Holy Spirit and God called, blah, blah, um, which is not to minimize that, but it's true. Um, but more on the what we view end of it. Uh, so I was raised uh, in a Christian home, as many people were. Uh, you know, faith was always very important in the home, um, morality, uh, biblical study. We were always at church, uh, Mon Sundays and Wednesdays, right? And maybe some other, uh, nights, uh, very social, uh, there's a lot of social stuff going on at the church. Uh, my dad was coached the softball team and played on the softball team and we were always around. Um, when I was 12 or so, maybe 11 or 12, um, I, and here's where the Calvinist cringe made a decision. Uh, no, uh, but you know, I, I realized, oh, this faith is something that needs to be mine and not just something that I do, but it needs to be something that I am. Um, I need to, I believe in Christ, not just that Christ exists. Uh, so I got baptized at 12, um, you know, was still very active in church. Um, fast forward to, I'm about 16 years old and my mom sits me down and has a talk with me and she says, you know, a lot of kids, when they go off to college, um, they kind of leave the faith, um, or at least it becomes less important to them. And I said, oh, mom, you do not have to worry about that with me. Uh, and just like Peter telling Christ, uh, I will never deny you. Uh, I said, mom, you know, don't worry about it. I'm, I'm, I'm in it for the long haul. Um, that turned out to be true, but, uh, you know, two years later I head off to college, off to college. I stay home and go to college. Um, and, you know, my faith really takes a backseat. I'm more interested in other things. Um, I, you know, I would still call myself a Christian. I would still argue with anybody who <laughs> denied the divinity of Christ or anything like that. But I was not uh, living my life in such a way as to reflect what my values actually were. Um, and, I, and I think that it's fair to say um, that those were not my values then, right? You, you can say one thing with your mouth, as we're taught in Scripture, um, and, but then your actions say where your heart really is. So I would say in the back of my mind, I always had that little voice. 
um, saying, hey, man, you're going to want to do the right thing here. Uh, and I would promptly ignore that voice and do the wrong thing lots of times. Not that I don't do the wrong thing now, but I wasn't super focused on repentance or um, anything like that. So uh, that, ha- that lasted for about 10 years. And again, I would have probably always called myself, I would definitely have always called myself a Christian and definitely argued with anybody who said Christianity was not true. But I was not, my actions were doing something, saying something completely different, which is probably the worst thing you can possibly do is go out and live not like a Christian and then say, Hey, I'm a Christian and, and it's changed my life, but you can't really tell that my life has changed. So, um, we fast forward some more, uh, 26, 25 or 26. I start to kind of look around and look at my life and say, Hey, this is not, uh, really what I thought my life would look like at this point. Uh, you know, when I was younger, and just kind of had this moment where it's like, man, all right, you know what's right in your heart. Do what's right. Um, and so I kind of started to apply myself more to uh, to understanding biblical principles, to really reading scripture, uh, to getting to the heart of difficult passages and difficult uh, doctrines within the church and all that sort of stuff. Um, I have sort of obsessive tendencies generally when I get really into something like, I know a lot about Hacksaw Jim Duggan, which you don't know who that is, but that's because it's an obscure, I mean, relatively obscure. He won the first row. Anyway, it doesn't matter. He's a pro wrestler from the late 70s through the 80s, early 90s too. Um, anyway, the point is I'm obsessive. And so I thought, you know, maybe I should apply some of this obsessive, uh, these obsessive tendencies towards something that actually matters, uh, towards eternal principles and truth discovery and like capital T truth. Um, and so I kind of, I don't like to use the word like uh, renewed or recommitted or whatever, because I think that if once you commit, you commit, you don't recommit. Um, but I really started to apply myself to uh, my walk with the Lord and, and just kind of understanding as much about him as I can, getting into theology, getting into apologetics, surrounding myself with people who were supportive of those things. Uh, those are all super important in this walk. And so here, here I am today. Still a, a sinner, obviously, in need of a savior, but I'm trying a lot harder than I used to by the grace of God. Um, enough about my problems. Let's talk about the biggest problem facing the church today. So this is super basic, but I think it's a first commandment violation um, that we've kind of, you know, we're told not to have any other gods before God, and we do. And I think that we have turned our desires into an idol, um, that we you know, which I guess is, anyway, you know, we look at, well, what do I want? How can I turn scripture into, into, uh, meeting my ends that I'm hoping for? You know, we've, we've want pragmatism and we want progressivism and we want palatability to the world. And those are all within reason. Progressivism is not, and I don't mean political progressivism. I mean, progressive Christianity saying that denies a lot of the supernatural aspects of, uh, the biblical text. Anyway, um, but, you know, that we kind of, we want to be so palatable to the world. We want to be so seeker-friendly, and we should be seeker-friendly. But what is seeker-friendly is if people are seeking the truth, then t- is to give them the truth and not to, you know, water it down for them and to not give them, as I've said before, not to evangelize on behalf of a counterfeit God. Um, we focus on this feel-good Christianity. And yes, Christ wants your ultimate happiness, which is to say eternity with him. Um, but that doesn't mean that there are not 
you know, moral standards to live up to and that we will all fail to leap to meet, but we're all trying and we're all, um, you know, asking repentance and, and, and that sort of thing. Um, we have this sort of, we want utilitarianism. We want, uh, this idea that, well, what works? Well, that's what we should do instead of what is mandated by scripture. And that's what we should do. Um, those are two, uh, worldviews that are just kind of butting heads within the church. And I think it's a real problem. And we want this synchronism with the world, right? Where, well, everybody's kind of cool and it's fine. And we should treat everybody with respect, of course. Uh, Christ calls us to love our neighbor, not just our Christian neighbor, but every neighbor, of course. But part of loving them is if you don't think it's loving to tell your neighbor you need to repent, now do it lovingly and do it softly and, you know, know your audience. But the most loving thing I can think of is to tell them, hey, Christ wants to spend eternity with you. Repent. <laughs> so, you know, and I think that it kind of goes back to, so all of these things are kind of a manifestation of what is uh, putting our desires ahead of of what, what Christ uh, wants for us. So, uh, and this is an old problem, right? So 2 Timothy 4 verse 3 says, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. And I think we see that all the time in the modern church. We create, we elevate these teachers who really kind of just tell us what we want to hear instead of what is the truth. And sometimes what we want to hear is not the truth. Most of the time, what we want to hear is not the truth. Most of the time, what we want to hear is what makes us feel good. Even me, I am in a situation where, you know, I like a little bit of fire and brimstone. And that is, why do I like that? Because it makes me feel good, not because I believe it's true, right? I, be I do believe it's true, just like the Christian who only wants to hear about the loving Christ. Of course, Christ is loving, and that's all they want to hear about. But that's not why they want to hear about it. They don't want to hear about it because it's true. They want to hear about it because it makes them feel good in the same way that I want to hear fire and brimstone because it makes me feel good because I like justice and stuff. So, you know, I think that we really need to be careful when we, as church bodies and as Christians, that we are actually seeking the truth instead of uh, seeking out uh, some sort of confirmation bias within the church that allows us to uh, have our own desires met and have our own viewpoints validated rather than looking at what scripture actually says. Um, I want to talk about hot dogs because that's what I always do. Uh, so I put only yellow mustard on my hot dogs. It's delicious. It's the best thing to go on a hot dog. It's a classic. Um, I'm not sure. I'm a, I'm a pretty plain person generally in my food tastes. Um, and I just, I feel like yellow mustard has the endorsement of big hot dog. Uh, <laughs> so it's, it's the best thing to go on there. It just gives you that nice little bit of kick, not too much. Um, when I was a young man, I, I put ketchup on my hot dogs. But as I am now, I put away my childish things in order to opt for yellow mustard because it's delicious and it's good and it makes hot dogs wonderful. Um, the next thing that I would generally ask, what is the best argument against Christianity and why am I not convinced by it? So this is, might be an odd answer, but it's, I think it's, it's absolutely the truth. Um, I think the best argument against Christianity is some sort of solipsism, um, which is the idea that the only thing I can know exists is me because I'm having the thought of wondering what exists, right? So I'd, I kind of, a way to kind of narrow it down is this kind of brain in a jar um, analogy where it's like, I'll, I could be a brain in a jar just experiencing these things. Um, 
but I'm not sure that anything else or anyone else exists, right? It's a kind of philosophical concept. Um, now, I think that's the best argument against Christianity is that the only thing I know that for certain that exists is me with 100% certainty. I only know that I exist. Um, but if there is an outside world, I believe Christianity is true. I'm as convinced about Christianity as I am that there's a microphone in front of my face. Um, I think if I have a logical and trustworthy mind and I can, and that I have sense perception, Christianity is of course true. Um, yeah, I have the same level of confidence in the fact that something outside me exists that I do about the true claims of Christ. So the only thing that, that the thing I find most convincing, um, like I believe George Washington existed, right? I believe lots of stuff. And if my mind works the way I think it does and the world, the world works the way I think it does and time works the way I think it does, then of course Christianity is true. Um, and I have no reason to doubt the fact that the outside world exists. And so I believe Christianity is true. That is why I'm not convinced. Um, yeah. Uh, a happier note, I suppose, as I always say, the biggest strength in the church today is going to sound like a weakness, but I think it's a real strength. Um, I think there's less social currency in being a Christian, at least in America, probably anywhere, than there's ever been. Um, there's no value in being a Christian. You are an outsider. And I think that is the most wonderful thing that could possibly happen to the church. I think when there are no ulterior motives to being a, a Christian, that you have a strong Christian church, right? Um, I think that we have a, a lot of heresy going on in the world right now, and I think it's more apparent, and that gives an opportunity to seek genuine truth. I think that, you know, the idea that it's not cool to be a Christian, it's not, there's nothing glamorous about it. We are truly actually taking up a cross and following Christ at this point in history. Now, there have been other points in history, of course, but I'm talking about today, um, where it's just like, man, there's nothing, the media is not for you, the, the politicians are not for you. Now, in America, you still have to kind of claim to be a Christian, sort of, to run for political office, but you don't have to practice it. You don't have to have any sort of genuine faith at all. And I think that I would much rather have a smaller, stronger church than a larger, weaker church. Um, we're separating the wheat from the chaff, right? Uh, and, you know, the fact that Christianity is hated, I think, is a wonderful thing about the church. It's strong. It makes us strong. And it's what Christ said would happen. You know, they hated him first. And if they're hating us, then we are doing our jobs. Now, if they're hating us because we're being hateful towards them or unkind or anything like that, that's not the good. That's not. And so we shouldn't use that as an excuse. Well, I can be a jerk because we're supposed to be hated by the world. No, wrong. But the idea that they hate us because we believe in biblical principles is a huge strength to the church. And it makes me so happy in a strange sort of way, I guess, in the same way that, you know, Paul was singing in prison, where it's like, man, it's so wonderful that we are hated. It tells me that we're doing things right. Um, and that to be a Christian, you have to, you ha there's nothing in it for you unless you believe it's true. Um, just like the apostles, there was nothing in it for them. Uh, so it must have been that they thought it was true because otherwise they wouldn't have uh, been willing to die such grisly deaths. What I want to do now is share a verse from Proverbs. This is Proverbs 26, verses 4 through 5, and it has to do kind of with apologetics and stuff. I really like it. So, And it also sounds confusing, and that's also why I like it. So it's uh, verse 4. Uh, Don't answer a fool according to his foolishness, or you will become like him yourself. Uh, answer a fool according to his foolishness, or he'll become wise in his own eyes. So this is a weird couple verses, and it's apparently 
pretty common in Hebrew uh, to do something like this because the first verse, verse four is don't answer a fool. And verse five is answer a fool. And they actually, even farther, it's don't answer a fool according to his foolishness. And verse five starts with answer a fool according to his foolishness. So they're kind of seem like they're at odds. And it's like, ooh, gotcha. The atheist got us. There's a contradiction in the Bible. Uh, but what's actually going on here, and I think it's kind of cool, is the verse four, don't answer a fool according to his foolishness or you will be like him yourself. It was saying by according to his foolishness in that statement, what it means is it's like, don't be like the fool in your answer, right? You need to answer the fool. If you're going to answer the fool, don't do it the way that he does it. Don't play by his rules. Don't play by his terms. Now, this is kind of a argument maybe for presuppositional apologetics to not uh, let the, don't let the fool dictate the terms of the battle, so to speak. Um, that you get to, you need to kind of be above where the fool is and answer him in a way that is different from the way that he uh, is being foolish. Um, and then verse five, answer a fool according to his foolishness, or he'll become wise in his own eyes. So according to his foolishness now means address his foolishness, right? So in, in verse four, we're saying don't answer him in the way that he is foolish. But uh, in verse five, it's saying uh, give him an answer to his foolishness so that he, so it's basically, you need to make sure that he knows he's being foolish. Uh, and again, we do that in a loving way, but you need to expose um the fool's worldview, right? The this the false worldview that there is no God, right? The fool says in his heart there is no God. Um, that you know you have to find a way to uh, not let him dictate the rules uh, of the disagreement, right? And expose his foolishness so that he knows he's being foolish. Um, and I would say I would go. I don't think I'm stretching the text too much to say uh, that you're also making it so that people around the fool realize that he is a, that he's foolish too, right? As I've said before, that oftentimes in these public debates about the value of Christianity, um, that the audience isn't, are not the interlocutors. Interlockers? There's some word I always read and I never know how to pronounce. Anyway, um, but you know, it's the people who are listening. Um, and so you need to kind of just, as I always say, just poke a couple holes in the worldview, give them a little, a little itch, um, and, and, you know, and then pray for them basically. Um, so yeah, you gotta, you gotta address the fool. Uh, you gotta address the fool's foolishness, but not in the way that he, uh, brings the foolishness to the table. Um, all right, I'm done rambling. Thanks for listening. We'll have another guest next week. Um, and <laughs> that will be much more interesting, I think, but hopefully you found it valuable to know kind of where I stand on, uh, some of these issues that, uh, we're engaging on, on the podcast. We will see you next. Well, we won't see you, but I'll be here next week. Thanks for listening.